listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to One Hour at a Time, uh, sponsored by Westbridge Community Services. Today we have a great topic that I'm sure a lot of you are going to find really interesting. Um, we're going to talk uh, about what it means to be an adult child of an alcoholic, and as our guest today, we have um, Safra. Sifra. Sifra. I knew I was going to say that wrong. I apologize. No Burke. problem who is a psychotherapist in private practice, and she's been in private practice for more than 25 years. She is the author of Together We Heal, A Life Portrait of Group Therapy, which is available on Amazon.com and Infinity Publishing. During her career, she has worked with a broad range of populations from adult children of alcoholics to high-stress police officers and their families, couples in the throes of divorce, and individuals facing just about any kind of psychological challenge you can name, including business owners struggling with bankruptcy or sudden wealth. She has also helped other therapists grow their practice and shy people find a way of marketing that feels comfortable for them. Shifra has become a nationally recognized consultant on the psychology of money, building a small business, and marketing. She recently appeared in Business Week and on Business Week TV for her expertise in advertising and advising financial services professionals on how to talk to clients about money and other personal issues. She has a master's degree in counseling and is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's a licensed mental health counselor and a certified alcohol and drug abuse counselor. Schiffer, welcome to One Hour at a Time, and it sounds like there's a lot we can talk about today. I'd like to begin just kind of talking a little bit about addiction in the family, because we know that for every one person who is afflicted with and alcoholism or substance use dependence, or at least for other people around them that have been um, affected by the disease as well. And oftentimes, the family or the support people will say, I don't have a problem, it's their problem. So I wondered if you could just begin by talking to the audience and telling us a little bit about how this this brain disease affects the people around them. Okay. Um, that's a, That's a great question, Mary. Just this week, I got a call from someone, um, I'm in Massachusetts, and I got a call from someone in the Midwest who asked me if I could help her figure out what to do about a parent who lives in the New England region. And she wanted to strategize you know, about her mother who was having some struggles with alcohol. And by about 15 minutes into the phone call, I said to her, I hope that you're also going to get help because your mother may or may not get you know get into recovery but the fact that you're calling me that you researched on the web you found someone in the area you look to do all this and you've described to me how distressed you are tells me that you also need to attend to your peace of mind now that's a very different circumstance from the young child who's in the family who's one of the four afflicted, but in this case, the the mom who is the the person right now abusing a substance um, is potentially having the least struggle of, of the, in the family. All of the children, the spouse, the, the that 
mom's mom and dad, they're also really distressed by what's going on. They're losing sleep. They're distracted. They're not working as well. They're just not functioning the way that, that they should be. So I don't know if that's a good example, but it's a, a very recent one. Well, I think that's a really good example because oftentimes the person who's afflicted with the alcoholism or the substance use dependence or who is abusing alcohol or substances really is kind of oblivious to what's going on around them. And they believe that they're they're coping. If they're pre-contemplative or they're ambivalent about their use, they're not seeing as many problems with their use as the people around them. And to be a family member waiting for that phone call, you know, like what's going to happen next? You're, you're, you're always like in that fight or flight kind of mode. And, and it takes its toll on the people um, who have to be there to kind of pick up the pieces or to even watch their family member or their loved one deteriorate as a result of their substance misuse. Right, it's very painful. And often we we know that um, in families that siblings, if, if you came from a family where there was substance abuse, in all likelihood we've got the, ge- the genetic load, and so there's going to be, if there are enough children, there are going to be one or two children who, who have, you know, some again, some substance abuse disorder and or substance use disorder and... Sibling to sibling, it's really difficult as well. It's very painful to watch your sister and bro- or brother do something to themselves that is so damaging, and you stand by feeling incredibly helpless, confused, angry, helpless, and unless you get treatment yourself by either you know doing something like going to Al-Anon or going to a, a, an addictions counselor then you're left also just spinning. So, yes, all kinds, all configurations of um, affecting the, the rest of the family. And I think one of the things that we see sometimes with siblings is that uh, the parents have spent so much time focusing on the the child or the adult child that's, that's um, in the throes of their addiction that the siblings feel like they're not getting the attention that they need. And it's like, what about me? I'm doing well. How come you're spending so much time on Johnny when, um, you know, I want you to come over to my house and, and be here for my, you know, for my graduation or my birthday or Sunday dinner? Exactly. I see that on a very regular basis, and it's it's really very sad. It's, it's I don't know, some, some variation, isn't it, of the... The teacher who's, you know, telling the the kid that keeps standing up, you know, to sit down and never says to the children who are sitting down, I really, really appreciate the fact that you're so attentive and um, are doing so, such a good job. And the the child in the family who's doing exceptionally well and often the most helpful child in the family, and that could be young or adult, is often the most neglected. Right. And the acting out, one, especially in adulthood, somehow, you know, there's a there's a parent who's enabling and who's overconnected to that to that adult child. I know in the um, 80s, I think it was the 80s, uh, when I was early on in my my professional career, I one of the, the proponents for families because we've always heard that addiction is a family disease, but the whole tough love concept. And, and really holding people accountable and having consequences and, and progressive negative consequences. And 
it seemed like a good idea when I first heard it, but as I've grown in my experience, I almost feel like tough love, that's exactly what it is. It's tough, and it doesn't always, not everybody benefits from that. I think it's been extremely damaging for some people. Mm-hmm. I wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think at the same time I would say that there are things to borrow and learn from from that philosophy for some situations in which parents really have tried the conventional nurturing route over and over and over and over again, and it hasn't worked and, in fact, has only made things worse. And so I, I think there's something to be learned about setting boundaries, about sticking to limits. Um, we know, for example, this is maybe a little bit off track, but we know that physician, impaired physicians um, who are currently, you know, they, they lost their license and just get it, get it back because of substance abuse or have it on a um, conditional basis, um, if they're monitored really, really carefully, apparently there's 70%, I just read this, so I don't know a whole lot about this, but 70% recovery, which is unheard of in, in the field, um, but it's because somebody is watching and right. monitoring, and there's a certain kind of toughness attached to this. Uh, so they're being, you know, their their blood alcohol is being tested, and their their work is being monitored and watched, etc. So I think that doing doing what parents are prone to do, which is to just be very loving and giving with their children, um, often is doesn't have enough monitoring and enough limits attached to it either. Right, or accountability. Or accountability. There's a great word, Mary. Right, right. and and I think think one of our challenges as addiction professionals is how do we help families develop the the accountability skills and and still be able to hang in there to the best of their ability, providing that that loving link so Mm -hmm. that people don't ultimately feel more shame and more guilt as a result of being told, you know, um, go away and come back when you're sober. Yes, that old model, I agree. I think that model is um, is way too black and white and doesn't give people the recovering person or the hope-to-be-recovering person enough room. I'm just thinking of a family in which um, a, a daughter was addicted to OxyContin, and I think it was three full-time long treatments, um, treatment facilities before this daughter got into recovery and stayed in recovery and now has over a year clean. If those parents had at some point just done the, the traditional tough love, in all likelihood this young woman would still be out using and who knows, maybe dead. Mm-hmm. So I do think you're right that setting limits um, with that link of love and connection is is ideal. Right. right. Accountability right. with love, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so are there other characteristics of families um, who are in the throes of, of addiction? Well, Besides the distress? You know, I, was, I was thinking about um, just examples that, that come up for me week to week or in have come up in my practice, and I think about the inconsistency and unpredictability that young people live with when they're still at home living with addiction. So, you know, I think about the story of the the 14-year-old boy that um, I saw not too long ago who 
told me this story. Mike told me, let's call him Mike, told me this story about uh, it was a Saturday afternoon and he asked his father if he could go to some friend's house to sleep over. His father said, sure. And, you know, he had his, now it's 6 o'clock, he's got his backpack and stuff and he's heading out the door and just thinking he's going over to his buddies to sleep over and his father grabs him, you know, by the neck and starts screaming at him as he's walking out the door and Mike had no idea what was going on and it turned out, of course, that the father had had no idea, I mean, just was in a blackout. He started drinking and didn't remember that that he'd said yes to his son. And if this son was not in any kind of treatment and you repeat that kind of unpredictability and consistency over years, you can just imagine the confusion that people grow up with as a result of living with alcoholism in their family. So um, this young man went into his room, turned his iPod as loud as he could, and just tried to shut out the pain. of underscores the importance for for people to get treatment, whether they're three years old or 80 years old, if, if their loved one is in the throes of their addiction. We'll be right back um, to talk more about addiction and families, and we're going to focus on the adult child syndrome when we come back. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're with Sidra Burke, and we're talking about addiction in the family. And uh, in this segment, we're going to be discussing um, kind of the concept of adult children of alcoholics um, and what that means and and, uh, the roles different people take on in a family system when there is addiction. So I was wondering if you could just begin to talk to us about the different roles sometimes people take on in a typical family. family that has addiction. Okay. Um, Sure. Before I do that, I guess I wanted to to say as an overarching um, notion when you were mentioning adult children of alcoholics, I was thinking that more than anything else, if I could say one thing that impacts them is that adult children have to guess what normal is. And it just is very difficult if you don't have a frame of reference for what you think um, it's okay to say what's okay to feel, um, and you're just constantly guessing about the. As I want to say that everyone else has the rule book, and somehow I didn't get one. So we'll keep coming back to that. But I was I was thinking that um, it's one of the impacts of growing up with alcoholism that the alcoholic him or herself isn't facing at least at that moment in the in the family. They may, however, have been an adult child, so have grown up with it. Okay, back to your your specific question about roles. Um, I'd like to say first that all of these that I'm going to mention, I'm going to mention four of them, are we're going to talk about them as though they're black and white and that they're single roles, but in fact most of us have a blend of these characteristics with one primary and maybe one or two secondary. So, If we imagine that there are four possibilities, one of them, the one that looks the best in the world, um, is what some people would call the family hero or the responsible child. And that person is the physician we see, the the coach of teams, the CEOs, the high school president. They're the, the looking good kids and adults. And... It's a, it's a great thing in some ways um, for that person because they don't look to the world like there's anything wrong in their family. So they don't look like they come from or bear the scars of any kind of difficult home situation. So you'll often see that high achieving and focus on performance and uh, oftentimes a, a kind of perfectionism or being perfect They do what's right oftentimes. They obey the rules. Very often this is the the person, the child or adult in the family that brings a lot of self-worth to the family. People pat the parents on the back and say, oh, you've done such a good job. Johnny or Mary is so successful. Um, And all of that's great until we also take a look at what the challenges of that role might be, which are that the person often is living a very high-stress lifestyle, may suffer with stress-related disorders, have sleep disturbance. They may not be so easy to live with because they have perfectionistic and unrealistic expectations, both of themselves and others. 
they may tend toward workaholism and sometimes burnout as a result, kind of an all-or-nothing um, style. Sometimes they're very much too serious, can be rigid, again, with themselves, with others, and oftentimes don't have much spontaneity or ability to really have pleasure. They're, um, again, they're pretty much just over-responsible. They get things done. The great thing is they're the people you want to um, get volunteering because they're really good workers. Oftentimes they follow through. You give them a job, they follow through. They have a lot of stamina. So that's that's the family hero. And many of us who work in fields that you and I are in, Mary, have chunks of um, chunks of this one. I would count myself among having pieces of that one. Oftentimes the it can be the next in the birth order. We, we associate the family hero often with the oldest child, and it seems statistically like that may be the case. And often the next child may not want to have to compete with that. Who would want to have to compete with that? And if you're a younger child anyway, you're, you're just by virtue of your age. If your older sibling is seven and you're four or five, they're going to be, they have much more mastery than you do. So, Sometimes we think maybe that second child um, opts out of the, the achievement game because there's no way they're going to be able to, um, you know, to, to over, overpower the, the first one. And so sometimes the way they get attention is not by achievement, but they get attention by acting out. And um, this child oftentimes seems may seem defiant and is is the the troublemaker in adulthood we would think of that this scapegoat or acting out person as the, the black sheep sometimes they often will elicit anger from family members and even from people on the job and sometimes we think that the reason that they behave as they do is to that they're working extra hard to keep others from seeing the hurt and the pain inside because often the Sort of, if you want to think of the the, the um, external behaviors, um, like the defiance in the case of the, the acting out child, is part of this maybe wall of defenses to keep what might be much more vulnerable inside the the underbelly, and that would be some shame, the feeling of rejection and hurt and, and guilt. Very often, this scapegoat. Um, is the person who will end up using and abusing chemicals. And part of that is they often look to others for support. They look to peers. They get away from their family more than many of the other um, children in in the family. There are some positives, though, of even, even this role. This person is the one in the family often who knows how to really have fun and can be spontaneous and oftentimes can be pretty creative and interesting. Sometimes they tend, especially as young people, to be more open about the family secrets. And if there's a teacher listening, um, often that's the child that's going to send the signal that something is really, really, really wrong in this family. You're not going to know that with the responsible hero child uh, because, as I say, their, their way of being brings worse to the family, and they just keep working hard to make things better for the family as opposed to the scapegoat who, 
does it differently. The next role would be the role of the lost child. Some people call this child the adjuster. And very often, that's if we're in the classroom, that's the child that when the teacher is naming all the kids in the class, they may forget. They're like, I know we have two more kids. And that's often the, the person who's the lost child. They can't, they're not even identifiable because they tend to retreat. They're timid. They avoid conflict. Their way of getting comfort is to get away from the chaos in the family or the, the distress. And so in their attempt to feel better, they often also miss what's good that's happening in the family because they just their systems just don't do well with, um, with tension and distress. So in adulthood... They often feel really boring and uninteresting. They're afraid to take risks. They're often really afraid of being hurt, and that's often emotionally. Um, may have a lot of stress-related problems, actually. Generically, that's true in adult children. There's that's, He or she is probably the one in the family that feels more helpless in some ways than others and has is pretty indecisive. Um, in friendships, tends to be the follower and kind of goes with whomever will kind of bring them along. But there are also some positives to this to this kind of person as well, which is that they may be a really good listener. They don't they're not pushy and demanding, so people sometimes like to be around them because they're pretty easy to get along with. When you ask where they want to go to dinner, they're going to say wherever you like and not be you know demanding about that. Um, often, too, they're, they're creative, relate to animals well. They tend to do better with time alone than some, some others of us um, and often can delay gratification pretty nicely. So there's, um, again, sometimes what happens is we have a, a public self and a private self. So sometimes you'll see like the actors very often might have a kind of family hero exterior that they show the world, but may have quite a lost child interior. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I think of Carly Simon, the singer, for example, who is panicked to get out and perform. So I often wonder, is there kind of a lost child running around in in her insides, and again, many of the, the, the performers that we see and the, the actors as well as it could even be physicians and CEOs who know exactly what to do on the job and they have a role that's clear and they're the family hero, but in social situations they're really you know, pretty uncomfortable. The last one is the person that um, is really fun to be around oftentimes and we call this person the mascot or the placator. And those are the, the, the great comedians around. I'm sure you can think of lots of people who are incredibly funny, kind of maybe life of the party in many ways, and it's the tears of the clown stereotype. So the laughter and the humor keeps the... That's their wall of defenses, maybe, and the feelings inside are often a lot of fear and insecurity. So during childhood and adolescence, this is, again, the, the child in the classroom or out on the playground or just wherever who's fun and silly and 
provides a lot of humor, tends to deflect the, the tension and reduce tension in the family. And as an adult, the person may actually have a lot of sense of impending doom. Even though they appear cheerful and witty, they, um, they're, they're struggling inside. But the positives, again, are sense of humor, interesting, and they're fun to be around because they lighten tension. So I think that's a, a pretty pretty cursory but maybe in-depth summary. Anything you want to ask or say about those? Well, well, I think that, as you said, that oftentimes people will take on characteristics of, of two of those roles and that um, I think some of these folks are more prone to depression later on, anxiety later on, even though they're not misusing substances. And maybe when we come back, we can talk a little bit more about how adult children present in treatment, because I think sometimes they get misdiagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll be right back to talk more um, about this wonderful topic of uh, children in, in homes of people that are using substances. So we'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. During our break, I was talking with uh, Shifra about the whole kind of label of adult being an adult child of an alcoholic. And in the 80s, when when this whole kind of um, recognition uh, was being uh, rolled out in our profession, I remember thinking like it became the new it became the new buzz thing, the adult children of alcoholics. But it also became something that was pathological as opposed to, as you were saying, some of these folks, they take on the role of the hero or they take on the role of the hero and the clown, and they're not abusing substances. They're not, um, 
they don't seem to be dysfunctional from from the exterior. Internally, they're probably a mess, but um, and then that's why I'm kind of struggling with the language here because I I just want to be mindful of the fact that a lot of these folks, um, you know, survived this this family system. I th- I think you're saying something really important, Mary, and that's that I wish we had a way to talk about most of these addiction and you know, just generic life mental health issues without a stigma because we're really just talking about one aspect of a person's life. And that's, so for example, my father was, um, you know, had some serious illness. He was absolutely raging. He was a a lot of things. But he was also a Holocaust survivor and and had, you know, sort of earned his distress um, from the life that he led. And... I could walk around feeling really uncomfortable, ashamed, embarrassed, guilty for talking about it, or I could just understand that that's that most of us come from families that you know are not perfect. We're not machines. We're not built perfectly. We have um, physical problems. We have emotional issues. They tend to be, as far as I'm concerned today, pretty much the same. If I were you know in line to inherit diabetes or high blood pressure or had breast cancer, you know, gene in my family, we we act like that's very different from if there's alcoholism or there's depression or there's anxiety. And I wish we could really move that forward faster. And it's hard to figure out how to talk about it. I agree with you. I do think that many of the people I see, though, really the... The, the primary issues for them oftentimes are are not that they're really such a mess. It's that they think they are because they don't have the the comfort talking about what is really more similar for most of us than more different. The whole reason I wrote the book, honestly, is what would happen is people would come into my office and they would tell me something about their lives. And I would think, oh, my goodness, you know, I wish that, that he could talk to John who just left because John was saying the same thing. John didn't know that most people got upset and preoccupied when they were on the verge of having a baby or losing a job or whatever. And, you know, then, you know, Nancy and Susan would come in, the next two clients, and I'd think, oh, my goodness, they really need to meet each other. So I ended up creating groups before we even had the term. I did my first groups were grown children of alcoholics groups, and it was simply for people to sit in a room together and say, "Oh my goodness, I didn't know that. You're kidding. You feel like that too? You think right. that? I had no idea that other people thought that way because they didn't dare check it out with anyone because they didn't want to seem stupid. And I think so much of what the adult child struggles with is not having had someone to talk with and somebody to check it out with, and it's much more that than some big, deep emotional problem. It's really about education. Right, and you said earlier in our first segment how um, these folks don't know what normal is. I mean, normal to them is something that may be chaotic, it may be um, detachment. They don't know. Right, right. And I think that is... In the 30 years I've been doing this, again, remember I started when I was doing grown children of alcoholics before we had a term for adult children um, of alcoholics. The the primary issue is feeling like it's just me. 
I'm the one that's struggling with this. Or there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong because with me. I feel this way. Yes, better better said. Yes, there's something wrong with me. Otherwise, I wouldn't feel like this. And the transformation often comes with identifying yourself as coming from from a family with alcoholism and learning about what that means. And what it means is not that you're such a mess. It means there are things to learn, like I didn't ask people for help because I was uncomfortable doing that. And you know what? It's okay to do that. Um, it's okay to ask for explanations. It's okay to expect something in life. You don't have to be perfect to be likable. You can play before work sometimes. Um, you know, looking at what rules you grew up with and being able to, to modify them. But the shame often of the, the alcoholism the, the don't, you know, what Claudia about Black talked about with the don't talk about what's really going on, can't trust people very easily, and boy, it's kind of dangerous to feel things. Learning to, to shift that is just profound. You know, I, I, I think we we might just want to say that this happens with folks whose parents were cocaine addicts or heroin addicts or um, or shopping their. their or who had eating disorders, or yeah. or like in gambling, you know, gambling exactly. Lots of it's not just with alcoholism, absolutely. And often it doesn't even have to. It could be with the the the, the over. If there's, I can't think of the term for over religious, but the the, the really very um, black and white, all or nothing kind of thinking that gets applied to to children can create this same sort of distress. Sometimes things like early death of a parent can, can, can create some of these same dynamics or a parent who gets really angry who's unpredictable or inconsistent. Sometimes even something as innocent as um, a really bad chronic illness in a parent where the, the child has to sort of become the parent and doesn't then end up having a childhood that's like a childhood the way that one would think. At six years old, you do things that a six-year-old would do, and at 11 years old, you're not prepping dinner for the whole family. Um, so. And I think about some of the children of some of the folks coming back from, from Afghanistan or Iraq who, you know, the, the, their parent has has been obviously traumatized some of them in, in very severe ways, and um, the parent that comes back is much different than the parent that went away. And mm-hmm. the, the feeling the need to take care of that parent must be uh, challenging for for young people. Well, I think that's right. I think we often you you and I might talk about cross generational behavior when the child ends up in the parental role in some fashion. Yeah, it just does impact the way we end up thinking about what our job is for the whole rest of our lives. And I don't mean the work we choose, but the the way we function in our relationships. We might um, be parental even when we don't need to be because it's just become reflex for us to take care of people. People become nurses and physicians and ministers and therapists, um, often coming out of those caretaking childhoods and adolescents. So what's the most effective treatment for um, folks who 
find themselves not knowing what normal is. Or or maybe you could talk a little bit about the whole concept of being codependent. Too. Okay. Well, um, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the effective treatment just real quick and then shift me over if you like. Okay. Um, I think for me, I would love it if there were enough groups of various kinds for people because I think often it's the best modality after they've created some comfort with, it could be an individual therapist or just a person that they talk with. So if I could design ideal, effective treatment would be a one-to-one connection between a person who's discovering that they want to talk more and understand more about their their life and how to make it better. So it might be with a counselor, it might be with a minister, it might be with someone that they can be themselves with and tell their story their story to and share feelings with. And then, in many cases, I think group is a wonderful place to go next because you learn what other people are experiencing. And it's in my 30-plus years, what I've discovered is group is often much more powerful than even individual work. And I, and I say that cautiously because I would say many of my clients would say that they've loved the individual work that we've done, but they have a sense that the people in the group are just regular people. And so when the regular people tell them things or say things, it's not because they're trained therapists who are trying to make them feel better or who are being paid or there's just there's no reason that someone else in the room would say something like, you know, I think you're a nice person. I think you're really bright. No, I don't think you have to do that. You can get out of that relationship. You don't have to, you know... You're not even married. You don't have to stay there just because you were this super loyal kid. Or you deserve to have fun. You don't have to work seven days a week. So I think there is something so healing about the group process that I'm really sold on that as effective treatment. I also would say look for a therapist who answers your questions. And I think because adult children tend to have a a kind of deficient database about normal, as we as we talked about, oftentimes clients come in and they ask a question, just a normal question, you know, do you think that, you know, do you wear wedding rings on the right hand or the left hand? I literally had someone ask me that question who wasn't sure. And um, they, just whatever the question could be, it could be a question about sex, it could be a question about relationships, it could be a question about anything in general. I think you want someone who's going to have a relationship with you and interact with you rather than the very um, traditional therapist who turns the question back to you right away and doesn't understand that for the adult child it's really important to get some sense of what is normal, that that's where that question is coming from. So, And the idea of being codependent, that gets uh, bounced around a lot in, in our profession. Mm-hmm. And, and when you say that, are you thinking the, the client who's being codependent? Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, I think that some codependency is kind of normal for in our society and interdependency on each other, but also the whole notion that somebody sometimes gets diagnosed as codependent. And we'll be right back in our last segment to talk a little bit about this and more about what... Um, to, We'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today our guest is um, Schiffer Burke, who we were talking about codependency and that being kind of a diagnosis that some people um, get labeled in our uh, profession. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about what is meant by being codependent and why that's sometimes seen as being pathological. Yeah, codependent, I think, came up for um, the, the person who was in the relationship with the um, the substance, the person who is substance using, abusing, and the the notion was that they were very much over involved and that they had, in a certain way, lost their own sense of their own needs, and that they were most of their focus was on how to get the other person well. So get the alcoholic to stop drinking, get the coke addict to stop using, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that it became problematic because they they often neglected children, neglected themselves, neglected their self care in the in the service of trying to get this other person well, and that it was very much overdone. I would say we overused the term. So if somebody was nice enough to send someone else a, a card because they weren't doing that well, somebody else would say, you know, you're being kind of codependent. I thought they were just being nice and thoughtful. So I think we need to be careful because it's a term that we can very much overuse. And at the same time, I think it is important for us to understand 
how to just to find some ways to set limits on how much we do for someone else at the at, at our own expense. It's a little bit like the airplane. You, you know, you, we really need to make sure that we have the oxygen so that we can sustain our life, and then we have something extra to give someone else. So. Yeah, I think if we could reframe that into how as treatment providers can we help develop interventions or support people who love people who are in the throes of their addiction and they're afraid of losing them, you know, what are the things we can do to help them um, be able to get on with their life but also acknowledge the fact that this person's in a relationship and they care about the person. Yeah. Um, and then that's not necessarily a pathological thing. No, it's it's actually a wonderful thing. It's a natural thing, and it's important for someone's recovery. Someone else, I mean, it's important for our sons and daughters and sisters and brothers and parents' recovery that we're really on their team helping them, understanding that right now they can't do it on their own, in all on their own, that our help may be substantially um, useful. So I agree, it's it's finding the balance between those those two between taking care of ourselves and being responsible and loving to people we care about. When they're doing things we don't like. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could talk with our audience a little bit about um, your book, Together We Heal, A Real-Life Portrait of Group Therapy. You were mentioning earlier how important group therapy is to the healing process, especially for folks who are adult children of alcoholics. And a lot of adult children of alcoholics, the last thing they do is go to a group. So, mm-hmm. Well, yes. I, I wrote the book, actually. It's kind of a cool story. I kept, at the time when we had just grown children of alcoholics, when we didn't even have adult children of alcoholics yet, the movement hadn't come up, um, as I mentioned, I was seeing lots of people because I was doing these groups. And I would tell everyone I knew to write a book and it just I would just go around saying to people, you know, you should write a book about this because not everybody can get to a group. There aren't enough groups, but somebody could write a simulated group book because I wasn't a writer. And what happened sort of simultaneously was that um, a woman named Kathy, um, I always hesitate, no matter how many times I've done this in the last many years, I hesitate to, to use her name even though it's sitting on, on the book cover and she tells her story as always. Her name is Kathy Mayer. Kathy came into my group. And the reason she came in was because she wanted to be a writer and she'd always been afraid to write because she didn't want to manage the... She she didn't feel like she could handle the rejection that she thought she would get. So she always took secretarial jobs. Fast forward, Kathy stayed in the group. She started writing. She started getting published. She And so I told Kathy, you know, like I was telling everyone, Kathy, you should write this book. You now have been in a group. You know what it's like. And she said, I'll write it if we write it together. So when she finished her therapy and enough time had elapsed, we indeed wrote this book together. And she made the decision um, that she was going to be herself in the book. Everyone else um, besides Kathy and myself are composites of people that I had worked with and or that Kathy had been in group groups with. And by then she had done the therapy group and there were a lot of um, Al-Anon ACOA groups and other kinds of groups. So she and I are ourselves in the book, and she wrote my 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 character, so to speak, and she wrote her own. And together we, we wrote this book that really walks people through 16 meetings of an adult children's therapy group. And it's all dialogue. It's what people are calling kind of factional in that there's, there's, 
it's all fact, honestly, except for the people um, who are composites. We, you know, mixed those up so that people's identities wouldn't be um, compromised. But you get to hear people like yourselves talking about everything from what it was like to grow up in a family where there was alcoholism and codependency, maybe, Um, people talking about how to learn to have fun, people talking about the different family roles that they took on and how they're learning to shift that and become more flexible. Um, If they're struggling, some of the people in the group had addictions as well, and they, they talk about that. They talk about the rules that they grew up with, and some of them, you know, weren't really good rules, like never talk about what's going on in this family, and now they can't talk about what's happening in their lives, even though they want to. So it was just, I think it, it really was, um, it was a great experience for me, and I honestly feel like it's a book that could be helpful to people who might not ever get to group or who are wondering if group therapy is for them, because it gives you a taste of it. So you get a sample without having to to go and take the big step. You would also mention that you're currently doing some other things. You, I know you have a cable show on uh, local cable TV, and uh, you're also doing some coaching as well. I am. I'm, I'm actually moving a lot into coaching and consulting with um, many people who happen to be adult children of alcoholics, but I'm working with them not so much one-to-one clinically as much as working with, they may be entrepreneurs who are looking to build their practices and and finding that the the ways they communicate with their clients or their um, co-workers isn't as good as it could be. So I'm, I'm teaching them relationship skills and rapport building skills. I'm working with some people who are speakers who um, also sell things as they, you know, from the, the back of the room sales, and they want to add r- more rapport and again learning the the people side of the business better. I work with therapists about building their practices, and they can be any part of the country. How do you build a practice? And some therapists want to add ACOA groups to their practices, and so I help them do that. So there are two websites. People want to, to learn more about what I'm doing. Uh, the main one of the consulting is www.birkeconsulting.com. And again, that's B-I-R-K-E. And the other is www.shifra, which is S-Z-I-F-R-A, Burke, B-I-R-K-E dot com. Or people can call me at 978 446 or lastly, they could email me at shifra, S-Z-I-F-R-A, at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to talk with anyone um, who wants answers to questions or who just wants to let me know about their lives and how this went for them, how the show was. Thank you so much. This hour has just flown by, and I really want to thank uh, Shifra Burke for being our guest today, and I uh, hope you'll come back in the future. This is went by way too fast. It did go by way fast, Mary. I agree with you. It flew by. And thank you very much for having me on. Oh, not a problem. And hopefully we'll see you all next week on one hour at a time. Have a great week, everybody.
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour.